Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an alarming report from the Inspector General of the Small Business Administration that finds over $200 billion was stolen from the Paywall Protection Plan program and the COVID relief funds that went to fraudsters. It is likely that up to 17% of COVID relief funds ended up with scammers, with additional losses of $28 billion from the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program and $76 billion in fraud from the Department of Labor's Unemployment Assistance Programs, with an additional $115 billion that went to people who should not have received benefits. Joining us is Nick Swellenbach, a senior investigator at the Project on Government Oversight, who was previously the Communications Director of the U.S. Office for the Special Counsel, the main federal agency in charge of protecting whistleblowers, during a period when he won bipartisan praise for restoring trust in the agency. We'll discuss what has been learned from this massive theft from the taxpayer and what auditing and vetting procedures will be employed in the future. Then we'll examine what can be done to recuse the pro-Trump Judge Cannon from presiding over the upcoming trial and having avoided an attempt by Republicans to get the Supreme Court to enact the outrageously partisan independent state legislative voting scheme, we'll look into the terrible electoral system we're left with, having avoided the worst, and speak with John Boniface, the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, who previously served as executive director and general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute, and as the legal director of Voter Action. We will discuss the letter at Free Speech for People he sent to the chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida, calling for the recusal of Judge Cannon from United States versus Donald Trump. Then finally, we'll investigate what is being discussed and what might emerge from meetings in Oman between representatives of Iran and the United States, as well as in New York via direct talks between U.S. Envoy Robert Malley and Iran's U.N. Ambassador, and speak with Juan Cole, a professor of modern Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Inform Comment at juancole.com and the author of Engaging the Muslim World, and most recently, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. And joining us now is Nick Swellenbach, who is a senior investigator at the Project on Government Oversight, who was previously the Communications Director at the United States Office of Special Counsel, the main federal agency in charge of protecting whistleblowers, during a period when he won bipartisan praise for restoring trust in the agency. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nick Swellenbach. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Nick. And I know that you and POGO have been doing work on the Small Business Administration, the disbursement of the PPP money in COVID relief. Now we're learning from the Inspector General of the U.S. Small Business Administration that more than $200 billion have been stolen from PPP and COVID relief initiatives. And it may actually be even more but it's absolutely extraordinary. Now, why do you think this happened? How could so much money be stolen? Apparently, it's maybe up to 17% of all of the funds were dispersed, ended up in the wrong hands. Well, it's, it's certainly a jaw-dropping number. Um, uh, it's, it's a big chunk of change, that's for sure. 
So what some of the main reasons why uh, so much fraud occurred is the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, and there was another second program, which we can also talk about, but the PPP, which is very well known, relied on applicants to self-certify their eligibility for Paycheck Protection Program loans. And what that meant is the Small Business Administration wasn't checking, for instance, their tax documentation to show that they were eligible. So an applicant could fake tax documents, for instance, saying they had X number of staffers on their payroll and that they spent X number of dollars on their payroll. Therefore, they are eligible for X number of thousands, if not millions of dollars in PPP loans. And normally the SBA would, you know, in other disaster loan situations, often the SBA would go to the IRS. They would ask an applicant, do you give us permission to go to the IRS to verify your tax documentation? But with the Paycheck Protection Program, that did not happen. And that's one of the main reasons why the floodgates for fraud were open so wide. So an earlier estimate was that $280 billion was stolen. And I'm not sure what this latest estimate is from the Small Business Administration. Do we have a, a firm number here? So these, how much money's been stolen? Yeah, yeah, these are ultimately estimates. So there are cases that they have brought to court, uh, either in criminal cases or in civil actions, where the Justice Department has uh, put together what it believes is a pretty solid case that there was fraud. Those are cases that lead to in- indictments or lawsuits to try to recover money or to penalize people for, for the illegal actions they're alleged to have taken. Um, those cases are, you know, you, you know, you can really, those numbers are more solid. These estimates kind of go beyond the cases that have been brought to court so far where they've used various indicators of fraud, um, such as the use of suspicious IP addresses from applicants who submitted applications online. Uh, there were, there's been reporting on many uh, application mills, if you will, where people, uh, criminals or alleged criminals, <clears throat> were su- submitting dozens, if not hundreds, of applications seeking PPP loans. And so by tracing their IP addresses, uh, criminal agents have been able to establish that there were some of these fraud networks that were submitting numerous applications that were fraudulent. Um, Other indicators of fraud are using residential addresses as the location of your business um, when it was completely implausible that your residential address could house a large business. Um, So ProPublica a few years ago wrote a great story on a lot of uh, PPP applicants claiming to run farms but the actual address of the business was in a residential neighborhood where no farm could be found at all. Um, So there are different indicators of fraud, and what they've been doing is trying to use big data to try to figure out the scope of fraud and then zero in on individual cases that law enforcement agents and prosecutors can look at more closely to potentially bring forward a case in court. So, Nick, you were saying that there are other pools of money that have been stolen from different programs. My understanding is that the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, they estimate that 
that they've suffered about $28 billion in likely fraud. And the Labor Department had the Unemployment Assistance Program, and their estimate is that $76 billion from that went to the wrong people, to say the least, and an additional $115 billion mistakenly went to people who should not have received the benefits according to the testimony from the Labor Department's Inspector General, Larry Turner. So if you add all this up, it's a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, so it's a lot of money, um, a lot of money that could have gone to eligible applicants. And, you know, as many people and as many of your listeners may remember, if we go back to the spring of 2020, a lot of, you know, legitimate applicants were running into trouble accessing funds, particularly in April 2020, when the initial tranche of PP funds, PPP funds ran out. Um, and so then the Congress had to appropriate even more money for sort of to expand the program. But, you know, there's a question here. Did the sort of overwhelming amount of fraud in the system prevent some legitimate businesses from accessing funds? Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Did it overwhelm the system? Is that money that could have been better spent elsewhere? Um, certainly money that goes to fraudsters is money that isn't available for for legitimate purposes. Uh, But yeah, I mean, there are a lot of programs at issue here. I've talked about the Paycheck Protection Program. I've also looked at the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, which is also administered by the Small Business Administration. And then you have some other COVID relief programs administered by other agencies, such as unemployment insurance out of labor. Um, And, you know, the, the estimates are changing as Federal agencies that are conducting oversight do more and more work and get a firmer grasp on the scope of fraud. Uh, But today's report that there was probably over $200 million, $200 billion, I should say, in potential fraud is pretty stunning. Well, apparently 86% of this fraud and potential fraud happened during the Trump administration in the first nine months of the pandemic when uh, Donald Trump was in the presidency? Yeah, so in the early days of the pandemic, which coincided with the end of the Trump administration, these programs were rolled out and expanded and implemented very hastily. I mean, the, the overwhelming priority was to shovel money out the door as quick as possible. And not enough grossly insufficient attention was paid to ensuring that there was enough due diligence and oversight on the front end of the process to make sure the money was going to legitimate businesses and, you know, people who had legitimate needs. And, you know, now we're sort of stuck with this insane problem, which is creating years and years, if not a decade more of work for criminal agents and law enforcement professionals Um, The Small Business Administration Inspector General just a year or so ago said, you know, he's probably got a decade's worth of work in front of him because of the fraud in the PPP and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Programs. So the people that have been arrested, and there have been a bunch of these fraudsters, you know, buying fleets of Ferraris and Teslas, etc., and buying mansions, there's a few, you know, more colorful ones that they've caught, but there's obviously a hell of a lot who haven't been caught, right? I mean, do we have any idea of what percentage of people have been caught and tried? 
I, I you know, that we don't have enough information to, to really know, but it's probably the tip of the iceberg in terms of the number of people who committed fraud in the program. Um, you know, you have to keep in mind, especially in, in a criminal context, there's a pretty high burden of proof and a federal prosecutor um, is probably going to focus on the cases where he has very solid, um, fairly close to slam dunk evidence, if not slam dunk evidence, that there was fraud. Uh, and there may be more gray area cases involved, especially involving bigger loans, where there's a real question about did the business really have a genuine need for the loan? So when applicants went to the SBA and the banks that the, that the SBA utilized to, to disperse funds, they had to certify that they that economic uncertainty created a real need for the loan dollars. That's a pretty that's pretty squishy language. That's not an exact verbatim quote of what people had to certify, but that's pretty close. And so for a prosecutor to come in and second guess whether uh, a business in the spring and summer of 2020 felt they really needed the fund, that's that's tough. That those may be cases where civil actions rather than criminal actions are taking taken more often, but probably at the end of the day, probably a lot of fraudsters will get away, uh, especially if they were involved in smaller schemes or schemes where it's hard for a prosecutor to prove that there was really black and white fraud happening. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, probably a lot of people will get away with defrauding these programs. And has there any evidence that any of this money's been clawed back, two hundred billion plus? Well, so there have been hundreds and hundreds of cases. There have been over a thousand indictments brought to date um, by the Justice Department, working with their law enforcement partners, and there have been over five hundred convictions brought to date. Now, in a lot of these cases, the government will probably try to claw back money if it still exists in bank accounts. Um, they'll seize assets, you know, like Rolls Royces, Lamborghinis, yachts, uh, homes bought with the money if they can. And they'll try to sell those to recoup some of the money. But it's hard to imagine the government, you know, you know, really fully recovering the full amount of money that's been stolen, even from the people that it successfully convicts. Um, so, no, no, probably there's no way the federal government will, will get all of the $200 billion back. So, Nick, tell us about the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. What do they do? So what they've been trying to do is to try to coordinate resources across the federal oversight community uh, and work with data sets to help law enforcement agents really zero, one, zero in on potential cases of fraud. So there's sort of a coordination entity. They work with data. They've also uh, done some ex examinations of how to um, learn some lessons from the fraud. They did a great report about a year and a half ago on how a lot of the fraud was enabled. And that report, you know, backed up one of the things I said earlier, which is that the lack of verification of tax documentation probably enabled a lot of this fraud. So they've been sort of operating like they're they're basically a group of the various inspectors general in the federal government that have some piece of the COVID uh, relief oversight puzzle. 
Well, one of the cases is the California couple who were convicted in June of stealing $18 million from the PPP, and they used that money to buy three houses, diamonds, gold coins, luxury watches, expensive furniture, and when they were sentenced, they cut off their ankle bracelets and left the country, leaving their children behind, believe it or not, and they were later captured in uh, February in Montenegro, and the man got 17 years and the wife got six years. No mention of what happened to their children. So there's some real... The idea of all these lowlifes, bottom feeders, scamming the taxpayer is just really infuriating. It just I just can't believe that the system is so porous that this could happen and that up to 17% of the money just is completely wasted. And it was the money was desperately needed. And I understand why they tried to get it out the door quickly, but you can't, it's hard to understand why they didn't have some better checking and auditing here. Yeah, I mean, I think there was, a, there was an absolute panic um, back in March of 2020 when the, when the CARES Act, and that's the law that created the Paycheck Protection Program, was passed. Um, there was definitely panic. Nonetheless, the Small Business Administration could have required um, all participants in the program, and I'm talking about lenders here, the banks, um, to you know conduct some better due diligence, know your customer requirements. In fact, there was a requirement that lenders know their customers, um, but many of the lenders utilized financial technology firms like a company called Wompley to process and vet applicants. But Wompley, which is one of the bad actors here, uh, according to a congressional report that was released last December, Wompley was really not doing the due diligence it was telling the lenders it was working for. Um, And basically, Wompley and some of these other fintech companies really enabled high rates of fraud because they weren't doing due diligence of loan applicants. So absolutely, there are a lot of straight up criminal to game the system, um, sometimes to the tune of tens of, of, of millions of dollars. But there are also bigger fish here. Um, some of the companies that the government was relying upon to vet applicants, and they weren't doing a good enough job. And then the rules that were in place were too weak and enabled fraud as well. So there's sort of diff- different breakdowns in the system. Um, you're always going to have bad actors when you have a large pot of money that the government's trying to move out the door as quickly as possible. So the government and the people working with the government, such as lenders, need to have the systems in place to at least do the sort of minimal vetting necessary to root out at least the most blatant fraud schemes. But those minimal systems were not in place, sometimes for months, if not a year or more after PPP started. So just in closing then, Nick, is there likely to be any real reform or retribution from this scandal, over $200 billion stolen by fraudsters from these programs? And actually more than that, if you added up the other ones that I mentioned, the one from the Labor Department and the other program as well. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the $200 billion question. Has the federal government learned any lessons here? Uh, I mean, there are some unusual things going on back in 2020, but um, 
you know, we're going to face disasters again on a large scale. There could be another pandemic in the future. There could be some other, you know, large, there will be another financial crisis in the future, hopefully a long ways off into the future. And so the government will need to respond with some sort of widespread economic relief uh, again and again and again. And so we need to learn the lessons from the past. And I think one of the big lessons here is you can't just rely on, on an honor system with, with applicants seeking large amounts of money. You need to at least do some minimal checking. Um, you know, the, the IRS is a great way to check uh, a lot of the claims being made by people who are seeking money. Um, and so that may be a, a lesson that, that ultimately is learned. But has it been learned? I can't say. Well, Nick Swell, I'm back. I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thanks, Ian. It was great to be on, and you asked a ton of great questions. I'm glad you're interested in this. Well, again, I've been speaking with Nick Swellenbach, who's a senior investigator at the Project on Government Oversight, who was previously the communications director at the United States Office of Special Counsel, the main federal agency in charge of protecting whistleblowers, during a period when he won bipartisan praise for restoring trust in the agency. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining what can be done to recuse the pro-Trump judge Eileen Cannon from presiding over the upcoming trial. And we'll look into the Supreme Court decision striking down the independent state legislative voting scheme, leaving us still with a terrible electoral system. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is John Boniface, who's the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, who previously served as executive director and general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute and as legal director of Voter Action. He is the co-author of The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump. And he has a letter at Free Speech for People. And he sent a letter from Free Speech for People to Chief Judge of the U.S. District Courts for the Southern District of Florida, calling for the recusal of Judge Cannon from United States versus Donald Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Boniface. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And have you heard back from the Chief Judge of the U.S. District Courts for the Southern District of Florida regarding the recusal of Judge Arlene Cannon? Uh, we have not. Uh, we, we obviously are, remain very concerned about Judge Cannon presiding over this case. Uh, as we stated in our letter, the purpose of recusal is not only to 
uh, remove yourself as a judge in matters where you have a direct conflict, but where there is an appearance of bias. And here, at the very least, there's an appearance of bias based on Judge Cannon's prior involvement in the civil case that Donald Trump brought trying to interfere with this very criminal investigation that led to this indictment of him. So you just have to wait? Is that the situation? I mean, did, well, what we, what, what we said in our letter is that the chief judge, if Judge Cannon does not recuse herself within a matter of 10 days, which has now passed, that the chief judge should reassign the case. Um, you know, there are, certainly is a basis to have Judge Cannon go ahead and voluntarily recuse herself. But given that she's not done that and appears to be treating this as a case she's going to hold on to, uh, then it is now up to the chief judge to reassign it. There are other avenues for having Judge Cannon removed, uh, one of which could be an appeal uh, in any kind of situation that the Justice Department may find needs to have the attention of the Federal Court of Appeals of a ruling that Judge Cannon issues. And in that appeal, they could ask the 11th Circuit to have her removed. Uh, you know, at this point, I think the, the, the concern is that whether there's an immediate ruling by Judge Cannon or whether there's a ruling down the road, uh, even at the sentencing stage where she may give Donald Trump a very light sentence if he's convicted, all of that puts a cloud over this proceeding and that cloud should not exist. We should not have an appearance of bias in this case or any uh, case, but particularly in what is going to be the most uh, you know, well-watched worldwide criminal uh, case in U.S. history. So, John Boniface, let's talk about the ruling that came down yesterday from the Supreme Court on the independent state legislature issue in the Moore versus Harper brought by the North Carolina Republicans. I guess, in a way, the bar has been set so low with this far-right-wing court dominated by these Federalists chosen by Leonard Leo. Three of them, of course, voted in favor of this completely <laughs> far-right-wing power grab, Thomas Alito and Gorsuch. So that in itself is frightening, exposes them as being nakedly partisan. It's the only other way to look at it, I think. Yes. But, you know, we're all breathing a sigh of relief that they didn't do something crazy. But I don't think it's all over. So just deal with, if you will, the main question here of how do we get to a situation where such a naked power grab could even be before the Supreme Court? Well, this is absolutely a, 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 a absurd and outrageous theory that's being advanced and should never, frankly, have even been brought, uh, you know, with the, the Supreme Court accepting review of it. I, I mean, the idea that state legislatures all across the country can be immune from any judicial review of the actions they take with respect to federal elections is absurd. Uh, and the court did not have to even take up uh, this question. So it was very frightening that they had decided to do so. And, and of course, uh, there were people from all over the political spectrum, actually, 
uh, on this point, uh, saying to the court that they should not adopt this extremist theory. The the unfortunate uh, news, however, is that while they did not adopt the most extreme version of this theory, uh, they did leave a door very wide open for federal courts to review state court rulings if, in their view, with a very uh, unclear standard, in, in their view, the courts uh, transgress the ordinary bounds of judicial review such that they arrogate to themselves the power vested in state legislatures to regulate federal elections. So what we're going to see as a result of that door being left open, uh, and Rick Pildes, law professor, has written in the New York Times uh, today on this uh, very eloquently, we're going to see a series of, of new cases brought into the federal courts where these reactionary forces who want to suppress the right to vote, who want to effectively uh, undermine our democracy, will rush into federal court when they don't like a state court ruling uh, that overturns a state legislature's actions trying to restrict the right to vote. That's what we're going to see uh, going forward as a result of this Supreme Court ruling. They have not uh, ended this, unfortunately. They have uh, kept it going with that uh, w- with that language in the opinion. So, in other words, what Rick Pildes is pointing out is that the decision does not adopt any standard at all, set any boundaries, or even rule on whether the North Carolina State Court exceeded its role. So as we head into the 2024 presidential election without any sense of what the federal courts believe to be an appropriate and non-transgressive role for state courts to play. Correct. And so you could imagine a, uh, a rogue federal judge, and unfortunately there are some of them uh, there, uh, frankly like Judge Cannon, who upon getting one of these kinds of challenges into their federal district court that a state Supreme Court has transgressed, you, you know, uh, the bounds uh, the ordinary bounds of judicial review, as the as the Supreme Court has just given this vague language for them to to decide, they could say, yeah, we we actually think that the state Supreme Court's ruling here that has overturned this voter suppression law or this gerrymandered district uh, districting plan, that we as a as a federal court will now review that and strike down the state court's ruling on the grounds that it somehow violates the elections clause, which was the basis for this absurd theory. Um, and, you know, as as Justice Ginsburg, the late Justice Ginsburg wrote in a ruling uh, a number of years ago, uh, nothing in the elections clause of the Constitution says that uh, the legislatures are free of any standard judicial review. Um, so the, the notion now that we're going to say state Supreme Courts interpreting their own state constitutions, um, you know, do not have the sovereign right uh, to, to make these rulings without federal interference is a, is a very dangerous moment um, and one that we have to pay attention to. I, I don't want to, you know, undermine the, the celebration of the fact that the court did not take the most extreme view of this theory. That's a good thing. And I think it's because of all the 
litigating and all the efforts to demonstrate to the court that they couldn't go all the way there. But I also don't think we should uh, ignore what the court has done leaving this door open. And Rick Pildes highlights that it's quite possible that the only way uh, some of these conservative justices were ready to sign on to an opinion that that, that denied the extreme view of this theory was to allow for that language to stay in the ruling. So the ruling does nothing to rectify the incredible gerrymandering that's already taken place in states like Georgia, Wisconsin, and Arizona. Partisan gerrymandering, unfortunately, um, remains allowed by this Supreme Court, and that was a uh, a 2019 case. Um, and and now, if a state Supreme Court says, like the North Carolina Supreme Court initially said before it then uh, changed its makeup and and in a very political partisan way overturn their prior court's ruling. But the, the original way this case got you know moving to the Supreme Court is because a North Carolina Supreme Court had ruled that a rigged gerrymandering districting plan in North Carolina violated their state constitution uh, and the guarantee of free and fair elections. And that's when the Republican legislators rushed into federal court with this elections clause argument that the state Supreme Court had no basis to do that because state legislatures have a sole authority to make this determination without any judicial review. Um, but now, uh, you know, as a result of this ruling uh, from Moore v. Harper from the Supreme Court, uh, you know, a federal court could decide uh, that a state Supreme Court ruling like that North Carolina Supreme Court ruling that overturned a unconstitutional gerrymandering district plan under their state constitution, that that transgressed the ordinary bounds of judicial review and could step in and allow those gerrymandered districts to continue. So that's the that's the problem here is that it still leaves the door open for the ability for state uh you know, legislators and others to rush into federal court and claim that their state constitution should not apply. So, in other words, John, nothing is being done to clean up the American system and make it simple, straightforward. Right next door in Mexico, they have elections where everybody votes. Everybody has a has an ID card, so there's none of this nonsense about voter IDs, and they vote. In, in huge numbers, and the results come out very, very quickly. It seems that our system is deliberately set up so that it can be gamed by lawyers on both sides. So somehow we prefer to have a system that's rickety and shot full of loopholes so all kinds of shenanigans can go on. It's not rocket science that you can have clean, straightforward elections. Most other countries do among the, the advanced democracies. So what's behind this? Is there some kind of deliberate effort? We know that the Republicans are shameless about voter suppression, and they, they get all of their people out, and they're determined to find ways to frustrate and reduce the number of Democrats that vote. And, um, you know, the Democrats have a natural majority, but they don't necessarily get their people out. So it's just shameful, really, if you look at it objectively. 
Yes, uh, Ian, you really hit the nail on the head here. The, the point on this is that we have a very decentralized system for running our, our federal elections. It's essentially 30,000 different jurisdictions all over the country. Um, you know, even the local jurisdictions have, have different means uh, by decisions they make. And the, the background for that really is because we do not have in our constitution an affirmative right to vote. Now, I know that may sound to listeners as something that is totally uh, new and, and, and not one that has been discussed before, but it's the reality that among democracies all over the world, we're one of a handful where our federal constitution does not affirmatively guarantee the right to vote. What we do have through a series of constitutional amendments over the centuries is language that prevents discrimination in voting for certain reasons, whether it's based on race or based on gender or based on, uh, you know, poll tax. Uh, those are all in the Constitution as constitutional amendments in the negative sense. But what we don't have is an affirmative guaranteed right to vote in the Constitution. What that means is that, therefore, we have this decentralized system. We could uh, have, like other countries have, you know, a federally run federal election system. But we don't have that. There's no there's no body at the federal level that ensures that we have uniform systems for how people register to vote all across the country or uniform systems uh, for whether even we have, you know, uh, prior registration before Election Day or same day uh, registration, which is something that I and many other advocates support because, frankly, there's no basis for preventing people from voting if they're eligible to vote when they show up on election day to vote. Uh, you know, that's just one example of many where the right to vote doesn't, uh, you know, uh, come into play here at the federal level uh, because it's really up to the states. It's up to, uh, you know, what the states decide. So it, your ability to access the ballot, your ability to exercise the franchise and participate in the political process on an equal, meaningful basis is is dependent on where you live. If you live in the state of Texas, you have less ability uh, to exercise your right to vote than you do if you live uh, where I do in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, and that's just fundamentally anti-democratic, small d. We ought to have a uniform system. We ought to guarantee the right to vote for all uh, people eligible uh, to vote all across the country. And it ought not be up to these state legislatures to decide who gets to exercise the franchise, which is essentially what's happened now. And so when we get to this point about the state constitutions, the reason why progressive advocates defending the right to vote have gone to the state courts and used the state constitutions is because we haven't been able to rely often on the federal courts to do that. And we don't have this affirmative right to vote in the U.S. Constitution, but we can find it in some state constitutions. And so that's where this litigation has gone to protect the right to vote. Uh, but it really ought to be ultimately an amendment to the Constitution that guarantees uh, the right to vote. And we have at Free Speech for People on our Democracy Amendments page of our website at freespeechforpeople.org, we have a whole section devoted 
to that proposed amendment for a guaranteed right to vote. Well, John Boniface, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Thanks so much. And again, I've been speaking with John Boniface, who's a co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, who previously served as executive director and general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute and as the legal director of Voter Action. He's the co-author of The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. And he sent a letter from Free Speech for People to the chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida, calling for the recusal of Judge Cannon from United States versus Donald Trump. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back investigating what is being discussed and what might emerge from meetings in Oman between representatives of Iran and the U.S., as well as in New York between U.S. Envoy Robert Malley and Iran's U.N. Ambassador. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Juan Cole, who's a professor of modern Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's the author of the blog Informed Comment at juancole.com and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and most recently, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. Welcome to Background Briefing, Juan Cole. Thanks so much, Ian. Thanks for joining us, Juan. And apparently there have been negotiations underway for some months now in Oman between representatives of Iran and Brett McGurk, the Biden White House emissary. And they're trying to revive the JCPOA, the P5 plus one nuclear deal. But there's also concurrently, apparently, the talks going on between Robert Malley the U.S. envoy to Iran, and the Iranian ambassador at the U.N., Amir Saeed Iravani. So what do you know about these negotiations, and what are they likely to yield? Well, my understanding, Ian, is that as of late uh, 2022, uh, last fall, both sides had pretty much given up on reviving the 2015 nuclear deal. And so I don't think that's what they're talking about. Uh, I, I think these talks uh, that are being brokered by Oman and, and Qatar uh, really are an attempt to move the United States and Iran off of what is de facto a war footing. Uh, the U.S. contractor was killed this spring uh, by pro-Iranian militants uh, in Iraq, 
there have been attacks uh, by similar militants operating in Syria on, on U.S. troops at Tanf in Syria. Uh, and the U.S. has, uh, under uh, former President Donald Trump, placed Iran under the most severe uh, financial and economic blockade, I would really call it, rather than just sanctions, that I think any country has imposed on another country in peacetime. Um, these are the kinds of things that the U.S. has done to Russia more, more recently over the uh, Ukraine war, but in the absence of a war. Uh, and uh, I, I think people haven't realized how dangerous this situation is. I mean, no country is going to agree to be strangled the way Iran is being strangled. And so it will act out and it has acted out. Uh, and, uh, and, and the U.S. Uh, administration is always, uh, you know, under some pressure from public opinion uh, to reply to any attacks. Uh, so this could at any point spiral into war. Uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff um, um, Milley was concerned about this in the Trump administration, has said so. Uh, and, uh, and the Biden administration has not changed the uh, dramatic uh, sanctions that were uh, imposed on Iran, including uh, calling the central bank a terrorist organization so that you can't even deal in Iranian currency without risk of being uh, uh, sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department. Well, apparently, Juan, in June, the United States issued a sanctions waiver allowing the transfer of $2.7 billion from Iraq to Iranian banks. And this was money due to Iran for electricity and natural gas supplies. So, and there's apparently a waivers now possibly going to free up $7 billion in uh, assets deposited in the Iranian central bank accounts in South Korea. And there are also billions of more additional assets in Japan, Turkmenistan, India, and other European countries. So is there some movement going on with that? I mean, and I can't imagine that these sanction waivers have happened without the U.S. getting something in return. Yes, uh, obviously, this is, this is tit for tat. Well, the, the Iran did release uh, some hostages, basically. Uh, and we don't know what else it might have agreed to behind the scenes, you know, have a talk with the Iraqi Shiite militias to leave the U.S. alone in Iraq, uh, that kind of thing. But um, this this is where we're at. I think uh, the Iranians would have been open to restoring the uh, JCPOA, uh, but they wanted genuine sanctions relief this time. The U.S. wanted them to mothball much of their civilian nuclear enrichment program. Uh, and the last time they did that, they, they mothballed 80% of it. Uh, they didn't actually get sanctions relief, even though the UN withdrew its sanctions on Iran. The US sanctions are, are third-party sanctions. So the Total SA and, and other European concerns would have been fined by the US Treasury Department for investing in Iran. And everybody was afraid to cross the United States on these issues. So Iran did what was asked of it and faithfully adhered to this treaty uh, until uh, really 2019, a year after Trump had trashed it. Uh, but in return, got 
even heavier uh, sanctions and, as I said, a kind of financial blockade. Uh, so when Trump imposed uh, what he called maximum pressure sanctions on Iran, Iran had been free to sell its petroleum, at least, on the world market. But when the sanctions went into place, it trapped billions of dollars of uh, oil receipts uh, that hadn't been transferred uh, in these in these uh, foreign banks. And so one thing that Biden can do, he can't really offer pledge of sanctions relief, but he can offer Treasury Department waivers on sanctions. Uh, and so what Iraq got was a waiver to transfer almost $3 billion to Iran that it owed Iran for uh, electricity provision and fuel. Uh, and similar waivers could be offered to South Korea and Japan. It holds those countries harmless. The Treasury Department won't go after them if they have a waiver. But they're specific waivers for specific purposes. They're not a, an abolition of the sanctions themselves. So that's what Iran can reliably get from Biden. And they don't want anything from Biden that, that's not reliable. They don't, they don't want a pledge of, of lifting of sanctions that the next president would come in and, and just reverse. And Biden tried to explain to them, or his representatives did, that you, no American president can make a promise about what a successor will do. Well, the Iranians said, well, in that case, you know, it's not worth it to us to, to, to get uh, sanctions relief for, for, for two years. Um, and then to get rid of our nuclear enrichment program, which is a civilian program, but I think Iran does it for uh, deterrence. If you know that a country uh, is close to being able to make a nuclear bomb, I think the Iranians are counting on people not attacking it in the way they attacked Iraq. And that would include the Israelis? I can't imagine how you could get guarantees against an Israeli attack. No, obviously the United States can't make any guarantees of that sort. Uh, although I have to say, Ian, that I think that there's an enormous amount of bluster that goes on uh, from Israeli officials about Iran, uh, which has never been backed up by any clear action. And I, I don't think the Israelis are actually in a, a situation where they can uh, take on Iran in that way. Uh, I, I think it's just it, it's, it's bluster. But they do want the United States to take on Iran for them. And Biden has gently made it clear to them that he is not going to do that. Well, obviously, Biden will get slammed by the Republicans if he does anything that looks like an appeasement of Iran, because, you know, clearly a lot of people on Capitol Hill are mad at Iran for supplying drones and missiles to Russia in their war against Ukraine. And also, I think a lot of people were quite hopeful that the demonstrations by these brave young women against the restrictions from the morality police and from the Revolutionary Guard Corps, etc., calling for women, life, and freedom. And there was a great deal of hope that maybe these brave young women could somehow bring this government to its knees or make, it, uh, make serious compromises, none of which happened, and they've cracked down even in a more draconian way. So... Iran is not a very popular country, shall let me put it that way. Sure. And one of the reasons that the Biden team has adopted this approach of low-key, out-of-the-way talks on very specific issues, 
uh, is is to avoid the firestorm of protests that that would greet any attempt actually to restore the JCPOA. Um, so what what I think the Biden team is trying to do is is to go to Iran and say, look here, we're very unhappy with you uh, for supplying uh, Russia with those drones to use against Ukraine, and we're moreover really worried that you might supply Russia with some missiles since Iran has a missile program. And we don't want you to do that. Uh, and here's what we could do for you if you don't do that. You know those $7 billion that are locked up in East Asian banks? Uh, we might be able to arrange a waiver for you. Uh, but there's a quid pro quo. So I think that's the kind of thing that's going on. Or you know, you're holding uh, uh, three American citizens and one U.S. Uh, green, card, green card holder uh, under preposterous charges against them, and uh, we want you to release them. Uh, and you know, maybe there's a billion dollars in it for you uh, if you do that. So uh, that that's the kind of thing that's going on now. It, it's it's no longer. Oh, another thing they want on the nuclear side is one of the ways Iran has shown its displeasure with the United States for. Uh, breaking the uh, JCPOA uh, is to uh, openly defy uh, the limitations that were put on its nuclear enrichment uh, activities by that treaty. They were not supposed to enrich uranium higher than 3.67%, which is the kind of enrichment that you could do to uranium um, uh, that would allow it to be used for fuel for a nuclear reactor, which is the only, from the U.S. point of view, legitimate uh, reason that Iran might have to, to enrich uranium. Well, the Iranians have enriched uranium to 60%. Now, you can't actually do anything with, ur with uranium enriched to 60%. They have a, a, over 100 grams of it. Um, but you know, the way they enrich is to feed it through these centrifuges. If you kept on feeding it through the centrifuges and got it purer and purer, you might be able to get to 92 or 95 percent, at which point you would have the kind of fissile material that could be used in a bomb. So the, the U.S. wants them to cut it out, uh, to stop enriching uh, so high and, and stockpiling uh, even a few grams of that high enriched uranium. And that's another uh, issue over which Basically, the U.S. may be willing to offer them uh, some uh, indirect sanctions relief, allowing them to receive monies. And the, the Iranians, you know, can't even get properly paid for the petroleum any longer. The, the U.S. is preventing Iran from selling its petroleum on the world market. I mean, it seems to me not, that, not against China, though. Well, um, the way this works, Ian, as I understand it, is that uh, if uh, Sinopec, which is an international oil company uh, in China, were to buy Iranian petroleum, uh, the Treasury Department would sanction it. Um, but the, the, the Treasury Department has limitations in what it can do. So it can sanction people who use dollars uh, for trade, and it can sanction uh, companies that have assets in places where they can be seized, in Europe or the United States, for instance. So as I understand it, what the Iranians have been doing is they've been smuggling their petroleum uh, to the uh, area south of Shanghai, where there are a number of um, small private refineries 
And these are refineries that work only in China. And they don't have international interests. They don't have bank accounts in the United States and they don't deal in dollars. Uh, so uh, everybody knows that the Iranians are probably selling you know, a million barrels a day to the Chinese this way. Uh, but, but they're doing it in a way that the Treasury Department has no way to come against China. And they can complain you know, to the Chinese ambassador in, in Washington, that why are you doing this and so forth. But there isn't any practical step they can take. No dollars involved, no international assets involved. Um, but this smuggling operation means that Iran has to sell its petroleum at a steep discount. And it has trouble getting paid uh, in anything like a hard currency. So it can get Chinese yuan or, or the Chinese have offered to unload some of their uh, soft currencies, you know, African currencies and things that the, the Beijing has stockpiled because it's, it has this international uh, trade in commodities all over the world. And the Iranians have accepted, uh, you know, soft currency transfers. So this is not an ideal situation for Iran. It's, it's probably getting six cents on a dollar for its petroleum, uh, but it's the best it can do under these U.S. Treasury Department sanctions. So again, if the United States uh, is willing to maybe let Iran sell, give a waiver to Sinopec, let Iran sell some some oil to China above board uh, and give it a waiver for, for some period of time, then the Iranians might say, well, okay, we don't need uh, really to have these grams of uranium enriched to 60%. Uh, we, can, we can let that go. But just be aware that we can enrich to 60% if we want to. Well, Iran, we've run out of time. And of course, today, Wednesday, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York said that there's no agreement in the offing. So we will stay tuned, I guess. And I thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Juan Cole, who is a professor of modern Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Informed Comment at juancole.com and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and most recently, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. <laughs>